Come on with it. Hey, y'all, this is Jigger Tiggy, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. I took a couple of weeks off in order to get my teaching legs back beneath me, and I think I have, and so now I'm back, and I'm glad you're back with me. So, let's get started. Back in the late 1980s, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how the CIA had gone undercover into Afghanistan to help Mujahideen Afghan fighters in their war against the invading Soviet Union. The CIA had brought Stinger missiles. These are portable surface-to-air weapons that can be shouldered by a single soldier. They shoot powerful missiles that have infrared detectors that home in on the heat of an aircraft and then strike and destroy it. In this article, an undercover CIA agent was telling of how his team had taken the Stingers to Afghanistan and had schooled the Mujahideen in how to use the weapon against Soviet fighter jets, how to aim the thing, how to lead the target, and so on. He said these Afghan fighters listened and participated politely in their training. Then the CIA handed over the Stingers and followed the Afghans as they took the weapons to the top of a mountain overlooking a Soviet airbase. There, they waited for the Soviets to start a large squadron of fighter jets. And when they did, the Afghans used the stingers to pick them off like shooting ducks in a barrel all before the jets had had the chance to leave the ground. The CIA agent told the Wall Street Journal reporter, I was astounded. We had researched and developed this weapon, and we'd done it strictly for defensive tactics, to shoot down hostile aircraft, to shoot things out of the sky. We had never considered using the Stinger as an offensive, preemptive weapon. Of the Mujahideen, he said, these guys were impressively creative. Well, here's a similar story, and one that fortunately does not involve death and destruction. About a decade ago, the school district where I teach began giving every student a Chromebook. If you don't know, a Chromebook is a little laptop computer whose programs and storage are all in the so-called Internet cloud. With the Chromebooks came a system called Google Classroom, which in essence enables students and teachers to go paperless. Teachers assign work digitally. Students complete the work digitally which, among other things, eliminates the age-old dog-ate-my-homework excuse. Though I did once have a student who told me my digital dog ate my digital homework. I cut him a break for his creativity. Teachers generally like Google Classroom, and one reason, reason is that we can use a method called Google Forms to give tests and quizzes. We handle no paper, and the program will grade much or all of the test for us. And that's wonderful. Well, shortly after we got these Chromebooks, there was a national push to teach computer coding to American students of all ages. Apparently, other nations were shaming us in the so-called STEM, that's S-T-E-M, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. They were shaming us in the STEM subjects, so American schools promoted the teaching of coding, even establishing what was called a day of coding. 
Our students learned how to use simple codes to create games and other digital wonders, and they enjoyed it. So we were making progress. And along about this time, teachers started noticing that in all subjects, all students were suddenly making astonishingly high scores on their digital test. Wow, this coding push sure is making them smart. Well, not exactly. As you might have imagined, because we had taught the students about coding, how to code, well now, as soon as they opened up their digital test, they also opened up the coding window for the test, and being able to read the code, they could read which of the poss possible answers were in fact the correct answers. And so they just chose those answers, and voila, a score of 100 on the test. Many of my colleagues thought this was horrible and despicable. Oh my word! We taught children to cheat. Well, I found it rather amusing. As the CIA had done with the Mujahideen back in the 80s, we had handed our students a strategic weapon and said, here's how you use it. Like the Mujahideen, they said thanks, then went to a mountaintop and used it in a way we teachers hadn't anticipated. My colleagues called it cheating, and I suppose it was in a strict sense but I preferred to call it creative problem-solving. Well, teachers and administrators raised a great ruckus at Google about this, and the Google software Brainiacs patched up things so that students could no longer reveal codes on tests. And of course, Google should have done that. We don't want kids cheating. But still, when my students can take something I've taught them and then apply it in a creative, if not unprecedented way to something else, I get excited because actually there's no better way to see if they actually did learn what I taught them than if they can take the knowledge and apply it to a different situation. Yet, teachers often get shocked or offended by this. Teachers are, by nature, control freaks, and they generally want to control not just what the students learn, but how they apply that learning. But the brighter and more creative students ultimately will not be restrained. They will find new and creative ways to apply this old learning. Along these lines, here's something to think about. At my school in 8th grade English, we teach about the Civil Rights Movement. We look at literature that was central to the movement. For example, Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, the writings of Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou and others. We talk about nonviolent protest, about civil disobedience. We talk about the structural organization of the civil rights movement. Well, one of these days it will occur to our students that the real lesson of the civil rights movement isn't simply some isolated moment in history more than half a century ago. It is rather an amazing strategy, dare I say a weapon, for effecting change, for bringing justice to those who have been treated unjustly. And let me tell you something. If you want to find a group of people who feel like they are being treated unjustly, have a look at eighth graders who are pressed to be in lockstep with dozens of rules and regulations, many of which don't apply to the teachers, under constant supervision for seven hours a day, Ask a student, especially a female student, to talk about the school dress code and give yourself some time because that female student will talk a lot about it. 
Students really do often speak of middle school as a kind of prison, as a place of oppression. So one of these days, as we teach the civil rights movement, some students are going to figure out that there are more than 1,000 of them in the building and only 80 teachers. They're going to figure out that if they organize, they could gain a collective power. They could use nonviolent protest and civil disobedience to bring teachers and administrators to the bargaining table where the students might get some concessions and, in their view, get some justice. Well, when that happens, we will know that our students truly learned the lesson of the civil rights movement. And in my heart and mind, when that happens, I'm going to be smiling. As always, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. And I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chiggerticky at gmail.com. You can shout at me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just search up Chiggerticky on any of those and you'll find me. You could also visit the blog at chiggerticky.com. So, I'll catch you next time. Y'all be kind and excellent to one another. And... Come on, win it!